All right, welcome everyone to another episode of Behind the Human. I'm your host, Mark Champagne, tuning in with a little bit of a deeper voice thanks to some allergies, but it just really helps bring out that radio vibe. So nonetheless, I'm still your host, and it's my job to unpack the stories and mental fitness practices of people living at the top of their game personally and professionally. And today, we have a just remarkable human uh, joining the show. Her name is Candace Mama, and her work is around forgiveness, reconciliation, and trauma. And it all began after her story of forgiving her father's murder, Eugene Decock, made international news. Her story has been listened to by the Dalai Lama. She's been named one of Vogue magazine's top 33 most inspiring women in the world and recognized as one of the top 20 African women by the African Union and United Nations celebrating women who have contributed to building peace in Africa. And as I said, she's just a stunning, remarkable human. So I can't wait to have this conversation and welcome you to the show, Candice. Oh, Mark, thank you so much for having me. Uh, I am such a fan of yours. I know I keep saying it, but, you know, I'm so looking forward to this conversation. Oh, thank you. Thank you for filling my heart early in the morning here in Canada. We are separated by an ocean and making it work with time zones, and it's going to be amazing. So I will, before we get into your backstory and in, in your work and, and all of that, you know, just one, I almost said simple question, but it's not a simple question. Just who are you? Who are you as you, you know, present yourself here today in front of, uh, of all of us? Wow, that is actually a really big question, right? Because who am I in terms of career? Who am I in my life? Who am I in different arenas? I think all of us are constantly in that questioning. And I think at this moment, as I sit in front of you, I am a seeker. I'm seeking to grow. I'm seeking to help. I'm seeking to fulfill my purpose, but I'm also seeking to do it with as much joy as possible. And mm. I think sometimes when we are on a quest to fulfill something, we can forget that life is supposed to be lived and enjoyed and filled with, you know, magical moments. And so I'm trying to combine all of it as I move through life and I figure myself out. Here, here to that, aren't we all just trying to figure, figuring ourselves out, right? Exactly. <laughs> I saw, I think I wrote it down. I saw a beautiful line. I think it was recently. Um, yeah, here it is on your Instagram. And I just, I mean, first of all, I kicked back my chair and just, just smiled because it was so you. But you said, "I'm just a modern girl with a vintage soul on a journey back to herself," and you're <sighs> dancing and having a blast. But I, is there anything you wanted to share about that? I mean, I, I, I feel yeah. part of how you just answered the, the "Who am I?" question is in that. Absolutely, and I think for me, when I wrote that, it was exactly what I was feeling. It's, you know, I'm this modern girl. I do all the things that modern society expects, and you know, I'm a visually like, you know, representative of a very modern woman. But at the same time, I've got this old soul. I've got this very vintage soul, if you will, that craves depth and that craves going back to a simpler time and, you know, having a life that was very different to the way we live today, you know, that had a bit more yeah. you know, a structure in a way. Um, and I'm not saying, you know, we must go back to any sort of oppression for anyone out there, but I'm really speaking more about, you know, there was a beauty to the simplicity of not having so much access. And I think yeah. we live in a world with so much that it becomes easy to overlook 
how much we actually have and appreciate it. For sure. So how do you how do you tap into your vintage soul? I love that language, by the way. (laughs) Thank you. Um, How I tap into it is daily. You know, it's just who I am. It doesn't really take much tapping in. It's not a conscious effort. It's just how I move through life. You know, I used to think that everyone, and I think that's the illusion all of us fall into, that everyone sees life the way we see life. And I would get so disappointed time and time again. Like, how are you not seeing this, you know? And then a lot of people would tell me, you know, you're an old soul. You're such an old soul. And I realized this because the friends I had ranged from my age at the time, which was like 20, and I'd have friends who were 50. And we could sit and have these remarkable conversations. And then I realized, ah, okay, I've just got a very vintage soul and a very modern body. (laughs) (laughs) it's amazing i mean it's got to be comforting to know though that like you have you've made those distinctions because it it the the flip side of that could be probably feeling like you don't really know who you are essentially right or there's a disconnect there and there's a lot of people that uh fall into that camp and I think, I mean, I went through a bit of that as well, just transitioning. We were talking about this earlier, but transitioning out of like a corporate world into working for myself and then something, you know, happening with that business that all of a sudden everything just shifted. And my wife and I often, we reflect on this and we feel super grateful about it, but we said, we're not even, we're, we're, we're not at all the same people we were five years ago. And thankfully we evolved together because that would have been a bad, it would have been a, not bad, it would have been a, a different outcome. Let's just say that. Uh, but we, we, we did evolve together and we got to this place that feels very aligned, still very challenging, obviously, but very aligned and, and purposeful. So, you know, it's, have you, I guess my question out of all of that rant is, have you always felt like this? Like, have you all, or did you have to do some work to really connect the, you know, those, those two worlds essentially, or, or bring in that awareness? Oh, absolutely. And I, everything you said, I just resonate with. And I think for me, it was a very concerted effort to finding myself, you know, um, you mentioned earlier that my father was killed, but you know, a lot of that, what happens is, and I speak about this a lot in grieving and in loss. It's the fact that when someone passes on, it act, it leaves this thread of pain in a family that can never be undone or in a community. Yeah. And so when my dad passed on, you know, it left that thread of pain and my mom needed to cope. So I didn't actually meet my mom until I was around the age of seven. And Mm. I'd already formed a separate identity by then. And so then I got ripped out of the identity I'd formed. And all of a sudden I was living with my mom in a modern city from living in a farm. And my mom and my family looked so different to me. I was the darkest in my family. South Africa is a very racially, you know, um, charged city. So you notice these racial undertones. And so my mom is mixed race. And so she looked very different to what I look like. And my brothers took her skin tone. So I felt as though I didn't, um, how do I put it? I didn't belong. And I was figuring it out. And then I finally figured it out. And I remember I was playing um, on the school playground at around the age of about nine. And for the first time, even though I hadn't really seen my mom as like racially different, um, I'd seen myself as purely black, right? Sure. 
And I remember I was playing one day and this girl came up to me and she was so innocent and I was in an almost all white school and maybe a few other, you know, kids of color. So she was the only other black girl that I'd seen since being there. And she came up to me and we were playing and it was so fun. And then she turned around to me and said, are you Indian? And I was like, oh, <laughs> what? That's new. <laughs> I know. I was like, what? And I write about it in my book. And the chapter of the book is actually called, If I'm Not This, Then What Am I? And it was the first time I had to challenge my identity and figure that out. And I remember arguing with her that, no, I'm black, I'm black. And then my mom came looking very Indian in the distance and my argument just fell flat. Um, <laughs> <laughs> So just ignore this coming. Yeah. But, I mean. <laughs> ignore everything you're visually seeing and just look at the woman in front of you or the girl in front of you. Um, but, you know, from that point, I really needed to figure myself out. And of course, we identify ourselves on what the world perceives of us as well. And so in school, yeah. I was very nerdy. I was very ambitious in terms of sports. So I was a sportsman in high school. Then I had to adopt a new identity when I left school. So it's really been a continuous growth experience. And I think the one thing it's taught me is I'm never just this thing. You know, I'm never just one thing. This is who I am right now at 30. I'm going to yeah. be a very different woman at 40, 50, 60, 70. And thank goodness for that. Thank goodness. Yes. You know. Cheers. I mean, that's why I asked the opening question. It's it's really to avoid job titles and and tap into like the essence of, of who you are now. And it's been fun because the show's been around long enough that there's actually repeat guests and they still get that same question. So it's fun to listen back. And I'm sure we will do this, uh, just judging by our connection and energy together. Uh, it'll be fun to see like how you answer that question because there's usually obviously some through lines that that stay, but depending on what's going on, but to your point, there's some, some evolution. Um, I do, I mean, I kind of, I jumped, not that I have a script, but I, I obviously was going to ask about your backstory and want to get into, you know, a lot of your work around forgiveness and whatnot, but uh, you got me with the modern girl living in a vintage soul. So I had to probe and pull on that a little bit, but just, you know, just, to, I think to provide, I think it's important to provide context to, you know, w what happened to your dad. So why don't you share a little bit about your, your backstory and, and, and that whole situation? Yeah, absolutely. So I mentioned that I'm from South Africa. And as many people will know, South Africa is known for a lot of incredible things, right? We're known for our wine farms, we're known for our incredible wildlife, but we're also known for two really major figures, which happen to be Nelson Mandela and Desmond Tutu. And both of those figures are centered around forgiveness because of the historical context of the country I come from. And so when I was nine months old, uh, my father was unfortunately brutally murdered by an apartheid assassin by the name of Eugene de Kock. And as I grew older, you know, at, at around the age of nine, I remember my mom showed me a picture of Eugene on a cover of a book called Into the Heart of Darkness by an author called Jacques Poe. And I remember she said, this is the man who killed your father. And for the first time, I started realizing that, oh, my family isn't like other families. Kids don't normally get separated from their parents. Like yeah. I'm living an abnormal life, you know? Um, and then it, like when I saw a picture, so every time we'd have guests over, my mom would ask me to get this book, which she'd showed me on the cover was this man. 
and I'd run to get the book. And every time I'd give it to her, she'd usher me out of the room really quickly. But I would hear people screaming or crying. And I started getting so curious, like, what's in this book? Like, why does it do this to people? And one day I sat outside the door and I found out two pieces of information. The first one was my father was in the book and I was thrilled because I only owned like three or four pictures of him. Mm -hmm. And then I just was like, okay, I need to find out what page everyone's turning to. So I finally got my opportunity, found out the page and I scribbled it down. And one day my mom was going to the store very quickly to get bread. And as she was reversing out the driveway, I ran to the bedroom, grabbed the book and I sat at the edge of the chair. And as I started paging through in hindsight, I can say that I knew something isn't right. The images I was seeing just weren't yeah. child appropriate. It was just very off. And finally, I got to the page. And what I saw was a picture of my dad's burnt body clutching a steering wheel and his eyes were protruding. And tears started welling up and my heart raced and I closed the book, threw it at the back of the cupboard. Mm -hmm. But from that age of nine, I was never the same person. You know, I just started being very self-protective, very afraid, very scared. And around the age of 16, you know, I was a very did you fit actor. Did you talk to your mom about that no, experience? No. Oh, really? Okay. I never did. She actually found out in the media with everyone else. <laughs> oh, wow. Okay. Yeah. Wow. Yeah, so you held on to that completely young girl. That's, yeah, yes. that's a lot. Yes. Yeah. And so at around the age of 16, um, I went to bed one day and I remember just getting this pain by my heart. And I thought to myself, oh my goodness, I'm having a heart attack. So my mom rushed me to the hospital. I was kept overnight. All kinds of things were done, gastroscopies, all of it. And I remember the following day, the doctor sat my mom and I down and he said the following words. He said, in my over 20 years of experience, I have never seen stress symptoms so severe in someone your age. Then he followed with, your body is killing you. And if you do not change what you're doing, you're going to die. And at the age of 16, I had to come to grips with my mortality. So a few days later, I was walking from the sports field and a thought hit me. And the thought was, Eugene de Kock killed your father. And now you're letting him kill you too. And that became the wow. turning point of my life. And so fast forward to the age of 24, we get a call from the National Prosecuting Authorities and they say that Eugene DeCock would like to see my family and I. And so I don't know if you want me to continue with that part or if you have yeah, any questions. Yeah, go for it. Yeah. Amazing. Yeah. So, um, I mean, the first thing I said when my mom told me was yes. Because a part of me knew that if I didn't see him, I would regret it for the rest of my life. And my mm. mom said, you know, if no one goes, I won't go. But if one person goes, I'll go. And I said, well, I'm definitely going. So if you guys don't want to come, it's okay. Um, and then the day came and my whole family came along. So we all went to the prison. And as we walked in, I remember just feeling as though I shouldn't have any expectations. I think it was a way of self-protection, but also as a way of just trying to be open to the experience. And yeah. so when we walked in, they walked us into where the guards have their dinner. So that was the first shock for me because it was a very warm and cozy environment. It was like visiting an old relative and there was tea and coffee and biscuits. And I remember thinking, what is going on? 
And so we sat at this long dining room table and I ended up sitting at the one end of the table and it was my younger brother next to me and my older brother, my grandfather and my mom who ended that side of the table. And then the rest of the National Prosecuting Authority members and the warden of the prison. And then an empty chair starting the side on my side was the chair where the priest sat and next to him would be Eugene. So I just ended up being the closest to Eugene. Hmm. And so... I was speaking to my brother, you know, we were waiting for Eugene to come in and the warden said, listen, Eugene is going to walk in at any minute. If at all you feel uncomfortable, just let us know and we'll remove him. So we said, okay. And I remember turning How were you feeling life. at that moment? Like where um, were you, where yeah. were you at? You know, to be honest, so uh, kids of trauma or people of trauma, in order for us not to have to address the depth of emotion we feel, we joke about it. So my, my siblings and I have always joked about things. So we were teasing each other. We were joking with each other, you know, trying to just lighten the mood of just like okay. what is going on right now. You know, yeah. so I can't tell you my base emotion. I, I, I definitely felt apprehension. I felt yeah. nervousness, but it was more you know, towards the, you know, the funnier side and trying to just keep it light for all of us. And so those were the emotions. And I think the first time I started feeling something like, ooh, this is happening, was when I turned around and as though by magic, Eugene was just sitting there. I didn't see him walk in. I didn't see him sit down. I didn't hear him. And he was just sitting there. And he looked like he had been frozen in time. The picture I'd been shown at the age of nine was the exact replica of the man who was sitting in front of me. And it blew me away. And so um, the priest said, you know, introduced all of us. And he started with my mom, who was at the furthest end. And he said, that's Sandra Mama, widow of the deceased Glenick Masilo Mama. And I remember Eugene leaned forward and he said, pleasure to meet you. And he leaned back. And so with each and every one of us, he would say that and he'd lean back. And then the priest said, anyone who wants to start with questions can go. And so my mom started and she said, you know, Eugene, I want to know what happened to my husband. Because back then, my mom had never had the context. You know, she just had to identify the body, but it was never fully reported on. Um, I I believe the headline at the time was um, assassin shot in a shootout. So my father was named the assassin, not Eugene. So I remember my mom asking and then Eugene told us as though it happened yesterday. And basically what happened is Eugene's team had sent an Ascari into my father's camp. An Ascari is someone who's working for both sides of the government. And so this man was to identify the troublemakers as they were called and lead them into ambushes around the country. And so this time he had identified my father because my father was working as the right-hand man to the person who led the PAC. And my father was a very skilled marksman and he was an incredible driver and he was a protector. And so he was told that all he needed to do was transport three men into Nalspreit, which was an hour away from where he was living, and he'd have to go home. So my father did this all the time, transporting people across the border and back. So he, I'm sure he thought nothing of it. And as my father drove into Nalspreit that early morning, Eugene de Kock had set up four men on either side of the bridge. So as my father approached the bridge, the men started firing at his minibus vehicle. Eugene, from the top of the bridge, realized the car wasn't coming to a stop. So he ran down the Nalspreit bridge and he emptied out his magazine cartridge on my father. When the car finally stopped and he still saw signs of life, 
he doused them all in fuel and he set them alight. And so that was the first time we got so much detail about how my father's final moments went. And so the conversation continued. My mom asked various other questions, but eventually we got to the end and my mom said, you know, Eugene, I just want to say I forgive you. Then my grandfather said, I forgive you. My older brother said it. My younger brother said it. And then it got to me and it was the first time I could speak. And I said, hi, Eugene. And he looked at me and he said, hi. And I said, I want to say I forgive you. But before I do, I need to ask you one question. And he looked at me and he said, anything, what's that? And I said, I want to know, do you forgive yourself? And Mark, for the first time in the interview, he lost his stoic posture. He looked around as though like he was feeling very uneasy. And he looked back at me and he said, every single time a family comes here, that's one question I hope they never ask me. Then he looked away and he wiped the side of his eye because a tear had come down. And he looked back at me and he said, when you've done the things I've done, how do you forgive yourself? And Mark, in that moment, I just burst into tears. I started sobbing uncontrollably. And I remember feeling in that moment that I'm not crying for myself. I'm crying for this human being sitting in front of me because I cannot take away his pain and he cannot take away mine. Right. And then in conclusion, they ended the meeting and I got up first because I was the closest, walked up to Eugene. He was still sitting. And I said, would you mind if I gave you a hug? And he looked at me very confused. And then he stood up and he held me really tightly. And he said, I'm so sorry for what I've done. And your father would have been so proud of the woman you've become. And so I went my way, he went his, and it wasn't lost on me that the same hands that were used to take away my father were the hands that were used to comfort me in that moment. And so I went on to advocate for Eugene's parole, which he wasn't uh, eligible for, and he received it. And yeah, that's when my whole life changed. Wow. Well, thank you. I mean, I know you've, you've, you've shared the story uh, several times, but I, I imagine, you know, it, it's never easy to share that, that story. So thank you for going there uh, with us and providing the context because it, it, you know, it obviously provides so much detail around or reason, I guess, around the work that you're doing out in the world for so many others. Uh, and it's so powerful. So in a, in a way, I mean, such a terrible tragedy, uh, but still leading to so many others being helped in some capacity because of what you've decided to do. So thank you, obviously, for, for doing that. I did want to ask you about just because this is a show around mental fitness and, and there's so much, I think that that can be tied or linked to forgiveness and in our minds and so forth. Like, was there anything you did to prepare your mind to go into that situation? Mm, That is such a good question. And, you know, from the age of 16 to 24, I needed to figure out a way to survive right? And so, and to outlive this diagnosis, because I was like, do I want to die? That was the first question I actually truly asked myself. I was like, I've been suicidal. Is this the moment where God's actually helping me? Because then it's going to be, you know, I just cease to exist. Um, And in that moment, I realized that firstly, the human body and human conditioning is not designed to kill itself. 
So it will try all measures to heal, right? If, especially mm. when it's in danger. And so that was the first thing that started kicking in inside of me. And I didn't forgive Eugene at 16 because I was a Christian or I wanted to be holy or I wanted to be accepted into heaven should there be one. I did it because it was genuinely killing me. And what I realized is anything that controls our mind and psyche controls our life. And I think that was the biggest realization I had at that moment. And I was very fortunate that at that very time, it was around, you know, when the secret started to come out, my power into the 21st century, Napoleon Hill's work was coming back to light. And, and my mom always encouraged us to read. And I remember reading these books and starting to tie in my experience at that moment, along with, you know, these books and these texts. And I was like, okay, if you can manifest any outcome you want, then I want to heal myself. And I started really getting into the habit of doing affirmations, journaling, um, you know, asking questions. And I think the biggest question that really, really stuck with me was around the time when I was releasing the anger and pain, I started to ask myself, who do I become outside of the story? The story had defined Mm. my whole identity till that point. And I was so afraid of going into the unknown, so afraid of going into this world where I needed to redefine who I was. And so that was really what I'd been doing up until that point. So I'd become someone who was in the habit of reflection. So I think if I hadn't been that, I think I would have definitely walked in a bit more panicked and stressed than I did. Yeah, yeah. There was another, there was a, a, probably another version. I love that prompt because you can really apply it to anything. Like we all have stories rolling in our minds nonstop. Mm-hmm. I often joke that like we're all New York Times bestselling authors, but the stories inside of our head, right? They, they are so convincing. They feel so real and uh, they create so much tr- trauma and mental suffering in, in a way. And there was a prompt, there was a prompt related to that, that I heard you mention when we're on our uh, joint event with the team over at Unthink. And, and you said, I wrote it down. Well, <laughs> I was secretly preparing for this interview while you were giving your talk. <laughs> so uh, there were some really gr- great you know, prompts um, that you shared. And the question was, or the prompt was, who am I without my trauma? Mm. And wow, is that it's so powerful. I think the follow-up question you used was something like, am I going to sit in this the rest of my life? Yes. Right? I'm curious, have you revisited those prompts for other things in your life? Like, how do they show up now? I mean, you, you've, you've experienced something that most people will, will not. Yeah. But then there's also, in terms of the, the, obviously the severity of the situation and whatnot, but then there's also just the day-to-day traumas and they're not, you know, they may not be, I don't want to classify the degree of trauma. Trauma is trauma. Um, but I'm curious to see like how, how you process now. Right. And, and I'm going to stop there because I have a follow-up question. Mm-hmm. I'm so fascinated to hear your answer uh, yeah. to you, but let's, we'll, we'll pause there. Yeah, that is, it is such an important prompt because I think as human beings, what we need to realize is our comfort zone 
does not mean it's comfortable in the traditional sense. So what we tend mm. to do is, you know, the saying like better, better the devil I know than the one I do not. So we can stay in toxic relationships, situations, jobs, spaces and places because deep down it gives us a sense of comfort. So what I had to realize was, so I grew up in a very dysfunctional family and it was very abusive, very all over the place. And I remember having to really center myself in that moment and ask myself, you know, who am I outside of this house? Who am I Mm. in the world? And who am I outside of all the traumas I've gathered within these young few years? And for me, what I started to realize very quickly is our stories The way we tell our stories defines where we go. And when you tell your story Mm. from this place of victimization and I am a victim of abuse, I'm a victim of my dad's killing, I'm a victim of apartheid, whatever it is for you, you actually end up subconsciously attracting and moving into more of those environments that that actually add on to that you know, belief system, because what we look at and what we focus on is what expands in our lives. And so I constantly have to ask myself, similar questions. So the question I constantly ask when I'm journaling is, is this, is this the person I still want to be? So now and again, I just keep going back and just being stopping in moments and saying, you know, I'm now this person. Is this the person I'm still happy to be? Is this the person I still want to be? And if the answer is no, which it has been over the years at times, I'm like, cool, then we need to figure it out then what is, who do I want to be? Because if I'm not that person, it means that I need to be moving into the space of becoming that person. And so that's the continuous journey I'm always asking myself, which leads us to the beginning of the interview again. <laughs> yeah, for sure. It all, this always happens. It always goes full circle. Such a, I mean, your prompts are so powerful. Um, I wish I could, I wish we had met before I wrote the book because you would have be an amazing chapter in the book, especially with the prompts. Um, but I think like what's, what's so powerful with these questions is that, you know, at least, at least pauses, right? Like it pauses you from just the default track of life and it allows or gives the opportunity to like, literally this can happen in, in seconds or minutes of, Oh yeah, you know what? I'm not like there's something off to that that question of, of of the person I am right now, and gives us the opportunity to make a decision that most people don't have access to because they don't s- slow down to ask those questions, mm. right? Because they're challenged. I mean, sometimes it, it's it's hard to receive the answer, right? Yeah, it's it's like one of those prompts that the the prompt that always comes up for me is is what am I pretending not to know? And it's just like every time it happens, it, it's it's a bit of like a kick in the gut because it's like, yeah, I know that. But like now I've identified, really identified what where I essentially need to go. And that feels challenging, right? Oh, yes. And I think yeah. the biggest thing as well is to understand that just because you know does not mean you have to act immediately. And I think I've had to learn that over the years that, you know, I will get this discovery call that I call from the universe. I'm like, oops, I've just found out something. Now what am I supposed to do with this information? And before I used to be, I have to act immediately. I've got to change and revamp my whole life. Like, you know, the construction crews coming into my life and I'm doing an overhaul. And I lived a lot of my life like that. I would, you know, 
I've, you know, just closed up my life in certain cities and just left and just being like, okay, this is not it anymore and just go. And I guess there's a beauty to that because I discovered that I don't have a home necessarily. The home is myself. So wherever Mm. I am, that's where I feel at home. And so there was beauty, but also there was challenge in the fact that am I running away or am I running towards you know, mm. and so I was like, yeah. am I just running away from this place because all of a sudden I've realized it's not who I want to be? Or am I running towards a place that's actually going to fulfill me in the way I feel like it could fulfill me? So it's always just about understanding you can know and you can set out a one-year strategy. You can set out some time and say, every day I'm going to consciously become this new person. Every day I'm going to build a different business if I hate my job. Every day I'm going to invest in becoming you know, whatever it is that needs help instead of thinking, I know now, now I have to act immediately. Yeah. I resonate with that. I I feel like we're very similar in personalities when it it comes to that, like the bringing in the construction, the internal construction crew and like, let's get to work. I mean, here's the plan. We're going to move this here and, and, and whatnot. And I think what's so beautiful about what you, what you brought up and thank you for making this, this, the distinction, cause that, it's so important is that the other thing too, is like, once you start reflecting on these questions and you, you know, you come to this moment of clarity, then all of a sudden you start seeing little signs as well, right? Like kind of gifts from the universe or whatever you want to call it. Um, like, Oh, is that, I think that's linked to what, you know, I was thinking about the other day. And then all of a sudden stuff starts to shift naturally, right. In, In a way, which is, which is a beautiful experience. But yeah, I mean, the same as you, I had to go through this, uh, a lot of forced construction, let's say, right? So on, I mean, you're, you're, I think you mentioned this at the very, well, you did at the very beginning in the way that you answered the first question, but just something around the, the idea that you've been a very reflective person from a, a young age. I would, I'd love to know, you know, before we wrap, like just some of the non-negotiable practices that you have for, you know, your mind, your body, your, your soul, like what are the things that are constantly in check for you? Um, and when those go off and when you're not doing those things, like, you know, right? Like, oh, I need to get back to this. Mm, That is a brilliant question. And before I used to have a very strict regimen, but my personality and just, you know, the way I move through life, it, didn't fit, you know, and I would then get frustrated that it's not happening. And then I'd leave the practices altogether, then come back to them. And, you know, I always felt like I was neglecting these spiritual practices because there's so many of them. Right. But then I realized, you know, I need to simplify it for myself. And a non-negotiable is every single day I need time alone. So for me, it's an hour, Mm. but I need just time alone time and silence, no music, no nothing, whether I'm doing a walk, whether I'm just sitting, whether I'm just, you know, but it has to be just time and silence. It doesn't have to be forced meditation if my brain isn't allowing me to do that, but it just needs to be a time of just sitting, breathing and being, Uh, because I think I tend to get caught up in the doing. I'm I'm such a, I'm like, oh, we need to do this, this. Every morning when I wake up, I've already got like a million things on the to-do list, as I'm sure everyone listening And so I've just had to force myself into that moment. And then I've had to sit down and reflect on the things that are going right, right? Because Mm -hmm. I'm such a problem solver and fixer, 
I tend to fixate on the things that aren't working, but I don't fixate on the things that are working. So sometimes yeah. I'll work my way into this wormhole where I've been so busy, I've been fixing problems, and then I'm sitting there after two weeks or something, and I'm like, my life is in shambles. Like, how am I going to fix this? Nothing's going right. And I have to be like, no, 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 calm down, <laughs> calm down. Yeah. Everything's going perfectly fine. <laughs> you know? Yeah. And I think another thing is just acknowledging my humanity. You know, um, mm. I think a lot of the time we assume, and I think it's the beauty of being a human being, the living in assumption, is we always love to assume that people out there have, know more than we do. People out there have it figured out more than we do. And something I've learned in my career and in industry, speaking to presidents, you know, spiritualists, authors, all mm. of them, is every single person thinks the same thing. Every single person is trying to figure it out and every person is wondering if they're doing the right thing, you know? And I always used to be like, when I'm as enlightened as Deepak Chopra, when I do this, then I'm going to feel better. But I just then started to realize that if we knew everything, we'd become the Buddha. Most of us are not going to become the Buddha yeah. in this incarnation. So it's just about accepting that some days you're not going to feel pretty. Some days you're not going to feel like the smartest person. Some days you will. And that's the mm. beauty of it. You know, accepting all of the chaos in life and realizing that life is chaotic. Life is crazy. But you have to constantly give yourself grace, give yourself time, and spend time with yourself. So another non-negotiable like for me is journaling. I have to write yeah. it down, even if it's like, you know, quick bullet points that I'm like, you know, this, this, this and that, that's fine for me. Yeah. Oh, I mean, now you're speaking my language. That's for sure. It's, I, I find, um, it's like ha whether it's a notebook or on my phone or whatever, whatever the, the medium is, I've, I've found a great release and pressure to like disassociate from like, I have to only write in this journal or have to only use this app, uh, having created a journaling app in my past, and just this great sense of relief of, no, the practice is reflection. So if as long as I'm in reflection, it doesn't matter what the vehicle is. And then all of a sudden now to your point, like if something comes up or whatever, you can just jot down a couple bullet points wherever and, and you've received the benefit of the actual practice, right? So, I mean, on that though, I'd love to know how you're journaling and what, you know, how you like to do it because it, it gives myself and others just, you know, just different ideas usually. And like, oh, that's, that's, that's interesting. Like I can incorporate that into my day or I'd like to try it. Oh, you know, there's something that's a little quirky that I started to do about a year ago. And so usually in my journaling notepad that I prefer to journal in, but if I don't, I'll write anywhere, as you said. But uh, something I've really loved doing is because I'm very musical, like my brain thinks in music. I'm, I've got a song for everything. Um, and that's how the universal God communicates with me. So yeah. Like in, in the mornings I'll like, or in the evenings, whenever I'm journaling, I have a little square within all my notepads and it will say my favorite song at the moment. And then I'll write it down and I'll put some quirky things like, um, my favorite book that I read this week or this month. Um, someone on Instagram who stood out to me this week, um, you know, like small things and why they stood out, uh, you know, like just what I enjoyed eating that yeah. day, you know, small things. Cause I kind of realized that 
you know, we remember the big things that bring us joy, right? The big moments, the moment you get proposed to, the moment you have a kid, the moment, you know, you get married, all Mm -hmm. the big moments. But we don't live life in big moments. We live life in little moments. And I I love knowing, and I've done this before, I've turned back my journal or opened it at a random page. And it's like, oh my gosh, the song I love the song (laughs) and I'll listen to it and I'm like, what was I thinking? (laughs) Sure. You know, so it just gives me a fuller context of what kind of person am I in this moment? You know, what's the context of my thinking? What am I fixating on? You know, what, what do I find fascinating? Because as you grow, you become so disassociated from the person you used to be. It's kind of like what Facebook memories does for us, even though it makes you cringe. It's like, Hey, that's me. <laughs> like yeah, I used to say yeah. this stuff. <laughs> you know? So those I are a few it. little things that I add in. Oh, I am go- I'm going to adopt that. I love it. It's like, I can see it in my own journal. It's like the little highlights box for, mm-hmm. for the day, the little micro moments mm-hmm. that, you know, add up to big moments realistically and, and are so special. Oh, I mean, I can just keep going forever with you, but I mean, I want to respect your time. So I'll ask a final question and, And it's just, you know, like what makes you smile each day? Oh, I love that question. And it's really evolved over time, you know. Um, Before I used to seek a lot of validation, especially external validation, you know. And I think I'm a part of the generation where it's come so easily in terms of using social media, Facebook, Instagram, Mixit, MySpace, whatever it was at the time. And I realized that I had an addiction to what other people thought of me. And a few years ago, I remember thinking, how about I became addicted to what I think of me? And I started really doing things that made me feel fulfilled and started making me smile. And so for me, even though I end up posting the dance videos on Instagram, but a lot of the time it's just watching yourself dance, especially if there's no one else because I live alone. Um, (laughs) It's so, it just, it makes you even more joyful because you're like, I am a clown. And I love my clowning. Um, (laughs) Every single day I have to dance. Like it's just one of those things that I have to do. And sometimes, honestly, Mark, I don't feel like doing it. Sometimes I'm like, I want to be miserable today. I woke up miserable. I want to be miserable. And I'll do it. Like I'll just put on a random song and I'll end up dancing to it. And afterwards I forgot I was miserable. I'm like, oh, no, but I don't feel like being that miserable anymore. I'll just be less miserable now. (laughs) (laughs) <laughs> yeah, exactly. Exactly. So, yeah, it's the dancing. And also, I love people. I really love people. So, you know, when people, when I can make someone smile, if I, if someone can co- comment on one of my Instagram posts, like, I really needed to hear this today. This made me smile, whatever. That kind of stuff really, really makes an impact on me. Well, you're making me smile starting my day. So I, I mean, I thank you for that. And I can only imagine a lot of smiles on the other side. And I, I mean, I take great pleasure and you, you bring joy to me when I see your dances and it just like, there's this, there's this energy to you that, I mean, it's perfectly said in your line the other day. I mean, you really are, you know, like an old soul in a modern kind of wrapped in a modern lens. And it's so beautiful to experience. So I highly encourage everyone to uh, follow you on Instagram because you're really, you know, whenever you land on your page, it's, I consider it like positive mental nutrition for the day. There's for me, it's just an, it's an upper uh, every time. So 
you know, I hope others can experience that as well. And and thank you. Thank you for just being such a, a beautiful light in this world. Oh, Mark, that means so much to me. You have no idea. And I know people are listening to us, but I haven't stopped smiling this whole interview. So thank you. And thank you for the contribution you make in the world. And I've really so enjoyed your book. Every time I read it, every time I need a reflection moment, um, you know, I take it with me everywhere. And it's just such a privilege to know you. So thank you for having me. Oh, thanks, Candace.